Hey everybody, today we're going to start our series on the formula of Concord and we're going to kick that off by reading what's called the epitome or the summary of the findings of the theologians that wrote it. Now, a little bit of preface here. This is from the Tappert edition, so there is an introduction, but I don't feel like it gives us the, the real reason that this book was written in the Book of Concord. After Martin Luther died, um, just as with any religious movement, after some important guy dies, immediately there's a split. Immediately there is a, a big split between different factions. Uh, we see this with Islam, right? There's, there was immediately the Sunni and Shia split. People saying, well, it should be people who are uh, handpicked to be the, the Mufti or the head sheikh or whatever. Versus the other group that says, oh no, we need to vote on it. Now that happened with Islam, but it also happened with the church after Christ rose from the dead and then he ascends into heaven about 40 days later. And before we knew it, the church had all these false teachers like the Nicolaitans and the, the proto-Gnostics trying to get in there. So unlike Islam though, the Lutheran church, when she faced this kind of split, this, uh, this dangerous situation, she didn't just let there be a split between the kinds of Lutherans. Because we have the example of the early church. Now, what do I mean by that? What was the threat and the split for uh, Lutheranism? Initially, right after Luther's death, the conflict was between what's called Nessio-Lutherans, G-N-E-S-I-O Lutherans, who wanted to follow the actual teachings of Martin Luther, and then the Philippists. The, the Philippists are Philip Melanchthon's disciples. Philip Melanchthon was Martin Luther's right-hand man, but towards the end of his career, he was playing footsie with the Calvinists, playing footsie with the Baptists and other Reformed type guys. He was trying to get a sort of unity and he was willing to be squishy on theology to make that happen. Now, it wasn't just these two camps that led to the need to create the formula of Concord. There was also what was called the crypto-Calvinist controversy where for some reason, there were Reformed and Calvinist guys kind of sending in these secret agents to pretend to be Lutherans to change the direction of the Lutheran church. I kid you not, that actually happened. And then there were also crypto-Catholics trying to get into the Lutheran church to get this, uh, well, the group that started the Reformation to come back and submit to Rome, to submit to the papacy. So eventually, the, the TLDR on this is that the reformers that gave us the formula of Concord got together and said, okay, it's not right to be a Nessio Lutheran because Luther isn't our Pope. He is of blessed memory. We do believe that God used Martin Luther to recover and proclaim the true gospel, but he isn't some paper Pope. He's not our figurehead, so to speak, because at the end of the day, Jesus is the one we follow. But at the same time, Melanchthon did make a mistake, so we don't want to side with him. And we definitely don't want to go where the crypto-Calvinists are pulling us, or where Rome is trying to slowly pull us back in under submission to the Pope. 
So we need to find out, let's go ahead and just establish, why are we Lutherans and not anybody else? How do we see ourselves as Christians in distinction to the other kind of Christians? So, well, the Augsburg Confession will tell you, what is the difference between a Lutheran and a Roman Catholic? And why did we split off from Rome? Why were we excommunicated? And the, the small catechism will tell you what is basic Christianity. The small called articles will tell you what's it going to take for there to be unity in the body of Christ again. The formula of Concord goes more in detail to say, what is a Lutheran? What really separates us from everybody else? And that's going to be of one of the most important foundational documents. Now, it is true that during this time, there was a, a Finnish Lutheran church that more or less had been established. They, they, it's fascinating how this country went from being Roman Catholic to Lutheran basically overnight. And they didn't have the formula of Concord before they were uh, nice and established and settled. So a lot of Finnish pietist churches and a lot of Nordic churches that are good and confessional and Lutheran Usually what they'll say is, yeah, well, our book of Concord isn't a 1580. And we like the formula of Concord. It's a great book, but they kind of have their own thing going on with that. But generally speaking, when we think of confessional Lutheranism, it starts with the Augsburg Confession right after reading the creeds. And it ends with a formula of Concord, which solidifies, cements our identity as confessional Lutherans starting with fealty to the scripture. So before we get to the actual epitome itself, I'll go ahead and read what uh, Tappert has here for the, uh, for the actual formula of Concord's basis, and it'll give a little bit more detail. So, formula of Concord, a thorough, pure, correct, and final restatement and explanation of a number of articles of the Augsburg Confession on which for some time there has been disagreement among some of the theologians adhering to this confession, resolved and reconciled under the guidance of the word of God and the comprehensive summary of our Christian teaching. Introduction In the wake of Luther's death, 1546, in the military defeat, 1547, of Lutheran princes and estates, a series of controversies about the pure doctrine of the Reformation threatened to split the Lutherans into two camps, a, an increasingly isolated Nessio-Lutheran party claiming to adhere to the original teachings of Martin Luther, and initially led by Matthias Flacius, and a Philippist party composed of followers of Philip Melanchthon who carried their mentor's insights to extremes. The desire for unification was abetted by strong political pressures but from both Roman Catholic and Calvinist sides. The open breach among Lutherans that the Colloquy of Worms in 1557 revealed led to two ineffective conferences of princes at Frankfurt on the Main, 1558 and Naumburg, 1561. Beginning in 1568, a theological solution for the rift was attempted with generous moral and financial support from the princes. The first formula proposed was James Andrei's five-article Confession and Brief Explanation, expanded in 1573 in his Six Christian Sermons. A recasting of the contents in the latter year 
produced the Schwabian Concord. A reworking of this dark document, largely by Martin Chemnitz, the other Martin as Catholics refer to him, in the light of comments from theological faculties and conferences and individual theologians, resulted in the Schwabian Lower Saxon Concord of 1575. In the following year, Luke Osiander and Balthazar Biddenbach were directed to draft another proposal, the so-called Malbron Formula. With the exposure of the crypto-Calvinist conspiracy in electoral Saxony, Elector August joined the movement for unification. In the late spring of 1576, he convoked a conference of theologians in Torgau, where the Schwabian Saxon Concord and the Malbron formula were combined into the so-called Torgau book, which Andreae summarized in the epitome, or first part of the formula of Concord. After being sent to all interested territories for comment, the Torgau book was reworked at Bergen Abbey into the Solid Declaration, or second part of the Formula of Concord, the so-called Bergen Book, 1577. During the next three years, while the preface went through draft after draft, 8,188 theologians, ministers, and teachers in the participating territories signed the Solid Declaration. Finally, on June 25, 1580, 50 years to the day after the reading of the Augsburg Confession before Charles V, the complete Book of Concord was placed on sale. The signatures to the preface, reproduced at the beginning of this volume as the preface to the Book of Concord, identify the princes and estates then committed to it. The English translation was made from the German original. Latin quotations, which were reproduced and then translated into the vernacular at the insistence of some princes, are here rendered from the German. Only the more significant Latin expressions are indicated in the footnotes. So again, great introduction to kind of tell us the basis for it, but when you hear about crypto-Calvinists and Philippists and, and a war that happened, the summary of it is that Lutheranism was in crisis. Luther just died, so we don't really have a titular head that's giving some good guidance here. What's going on, and how can the Lutherans persist with all of these forces going on and coming up and trying to yank it apart? Well, here the Book of Concord, completed with the formula of Concord, it's basically the document that saved Lutheranism from splitting up and uh, ending up like Islam instead of ending up like the true Christian church. So, and again, as a confessional Lutheran, I put my stamp of approval on the formula of Concord. This is a fantastic book, not only for saying what is a Lutheran and what is not a Lutheran, but also for saying, what does the Bible say? Because from the very outset, this book, the formula of Concord, both the epitome and the solid declaration that we're going to record in parts, both of these make it plain that everything has to go according to Scripture. Everything has to go according to Scripture, and if Scripture doesn't give us enough detail on something, we are not going to try to answer those questions ourselves. So that said, today we're going to go ahead and read the epitome out loud. We're going to read all of it. And over the next few weeks, we are going to be reading the other parts uh, in sections, because this is actually pretty big here. It's, a, it's about 200 pages long. So, starting off with the epitome then, part one, epitome. 
A summary epitome of the articles in controversy among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession expounded and settled in Christian fashion in conformity with God's word in the recapitulation here following. The comprehensive summary, rule, and norm according to which all doctrines should be judged and the errors which intruded should be explained and decided in a Christian way. The first part, extremely important. The very first thing they want to bring up is the rule and norm of our faith. So going right into that, one, we believe, teach, and confess that the prophetic and apostolic writings of the Old and New Testaments are the only rule and norm according to which all doctrines and teachers alike must be appraised and judged. As it is written in Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And as St. Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 8, Even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preached to you, let him be accursed. Other writings of ancient and modern teachers, whatever their names, should not be put on a par with Holy Scripture. Every single one of them should be subordinated to the scriptures and should be received in no other way and no further than as witnesses to the fashion in which the doctrine of the prophets and apostles was preserved in post-apostolic times. 2. Immediately after the time of the apostles, in fact already during their lifetime, false teachers and heretics invaded the church. Against these, the ancient church formulated symbols, that is, brief and explicit confessions, or I would add creeds, which were accepted as the unanimous Catholic, Christian faith, and confessions of the Orthodox and true church, namely the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. We pledge ourselves to these, and we hereby reject all heresies and teachings which have been introduced into the church of God contrary to them. 3. With reference to the schism in matters of faith which has occurred in our times, we regard as the unanimous consensus and exposition of our Christian faith, particularly against the false worship, idolatry, and superstition of the papacy and against other sects, and as the symbol of our time, the first and unaltered Augsburg Confession, which was delivered to Emperor Charles V at Augsburg during the Great Diet in the year 1530, together with the Apology thereof and the articles drafted at Schmalkald in the year 1537, which the leading theologians approved by their subscription at that time. Since these matters also concern the laity and the salvation of their souls, we subscribe Dr. Luther's small and large catechisms, as both of them are contained in his printed works. They are the layman's Bible and contain everything which Holy Scripture discusses at greater length and which a Christian must know for his salvation. All doctrines should conform to the standards set forth above. Whatever is contrary to them should be rejected and condemned as opposed to the unanimous declaration of our faith. In this way, the distinction between the Holy Scripture of the Old and New Testaments and all other writings is maintained and Holy Scripture remains the only judge, rule, and norm according to which, as the only touchstone, all doctrines should and must be understood and judged as good or evil, right or wrong. Other symbols and other writings are not judges like Holy Scripture, 
but merely witnesses and expositions of the faith, setting forth how at various times the Holy Scriptures were understood by contemporaries in the Church of God with reference to controverted articles and how contrary teachings were rejected and condemned. The first article, then, is Original Sin. And see, having introduced the formula of Concord, uh, we're now getting into the individual things that are leading to all these arguments and potential schisms within the Lutheran Church. Saying, all right, the Bible is our number one source. The, the rest of the Book of Concord is our personal tradition here that helps us as an interpretive authority. And now let's get into the thick of it. Article 1, Original Sin. The question at issue. The principal question in this controversy is if, strictly and without any distinction, original sin is man's corrupted nature, substance and essence, or indeed the principal and best part of his being, that is, his rational soul in its highest form and powers. Or if there is a distinction, even after the fall, between man's substance, nature, essence, body, and soul on the one hand, and original sin on the other hand. So that man's nature is one thing, and original sin, which inheres in the corrupted nature and corrupts it, is something else. So now we get to the affirmative theses. And I know, sorry, there's a quite a bit of recorder's notes. I'm going to try to keep that to a minimum for here. For all of these issues, they're going to have, for the most part, here's the question, here's the issue that we're trying to work out. And then they're going to say, here are our affirmative theses. Here's what we believe as confessional Lutherans. And then they're going to have the antitheses, what we are rejecting that other denominations or cults or any other group might believe. So, affirmative theses on the doctrine of original sin. The pure doctrine, faith, and confession according to the aforesaid standard and comprehensive exposition. 1. We believe, teach, and confess that there is a distinction between man's nature and original sin. Not only in the beginning when God created man pure and holy and without sin, but also as we now have our nature after the fall. Even after the fall, our nature is and remains a creature of God. The distinction between our nature and original sin is as great as the difference between God's work and the devil's work. 2. We also believe, teach, and confess that we must preserve this distinction most diligently, because the view that admits no distinction between our corrupted human nature and original sin militates against and cannot coexist with the chief articles of our Christian faith, namely creation, redemption, sanctification, and the resurrection of our flesh. God not only created the body and soul of Adam and Eve before the fall, but also our bodies and souls after the fall, even though they are corrupted. God still acknowledges them as his handiwork. As it is written, Thy hands fashioned and made me all that I am round about. Job 10, verse 8. Furthermore, the Son of God assumed into the unity of his person this same human nature, though without sin, and thus took on himself not alien flesh, but our own. And according to our flesh has truly become our brother. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 17, quote, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature. For surely it is not with angels that he is concerned, but with the descendants of Abraham. 
Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in every respect, and, quote, sin accepted. Thus Christ has redeemed our nature as his creation, sanctifies it as his creation, quickens it from the dead as his creation, and adorns it gloriously as his creation. But he has not created original sin, has not assumed it, has not redeemed it, has not sanctified it, will not quicken it in the elect, will not glorify it or save it. On the contrary, in the resurrection it will be utterly destroyed. These points clearly set forth the distinction between the corrupted nature itself and the corruption which is in the nature and which has corrupted the nature. 3. On the other hand, we believe, teach, and confess that original sin is not a slight corruption of human nature, but that it is so deep a corruption that nothing sound or uncorrupted has survived in man's body or soul, in his inward or outward powers. It is as the church sings, through Adam's fall, man's nature and essence are all corrupt. That's from a, uh, that's from a hymn by Lazarus Spengler. It sounds a lot better in the German. This damage is so unspeakable that it may not be recognized by a rational process, but only from God's word. No one except God alone can separate the corruption of our nature from the nature itself. This will take place wholly by way of death in the resurrection. Then the nature which we now bear will arise and live forever, without original sin and completely separated and removed from it. As Job 19 verses 26 and 27 asserts, I shall be covered by this my skin, and in my flesh I shall see God. Him I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold him. Now for the antitheses, uh, rejection of the contrary false teachings. 1. Accordingly, we reject and condemn the teaching that original sin is only a debt which we owe because of someone else's wrongdoings without any kind of corruption of our own nature. That was uh, Albert Pigius saying that. 2. Likewise, the teaching that evil desires are not sin, but consecrated and essential properties of human nature, or the teaching that the cited defect and damage is not truly sin, on account of which man outside of Christ is a child of wrath, which um, seems to be something the Council of Trent was trying to get at. 3. We likewise reject the Pelagian error, which asserts that man's nature is uncorrupted even after the fall, and especially that in spiritual things its natural powers remained holy, good, and pure. Three, likewise, or four, likewise the teaching that original sin is a slight, insignificant splot or blemish that has only been sprinkled or splashed on externally, and that underneath man's nature is retain, retained unimpaired its powers for good even in spiritual things. Five, furthermore, that original sin is only an external impediment to man's good spiritual powers and not the complete deprivation or loss of the same just as garlic juice smeared upon a magnet impedes but does not remove the natural powers of the magnet. Likewise, the view that this blemish may be removed as readily as a spot can be washed from the face or color from the wall. 6. Furthermore, that the human nature and essence in man is not entirely corrupted, but that man still has something good about him, even in spiritual matters, 
For example, the capacity, skill, capability, or power to initiate or to affect or to cooperate in something spiritual, as the synergists say. 7. We also reject the Manichaean error that original sin is an essential, self-existing something, which Satan infused into and mingled with human nature as when poison and wine are mixed. 8. Likewise, that it is not the natural man himself who commits sin, but something extraneous and alien within man, and that therefore not the nature of man, but only the original sin which is in the nature is being accused. 9. We also reject and condemn as a Manichaean error the teaching that original sin is strictly, and without any distinction, corrupted man's substance, nature, and essence, so that no distinction should be made even in the mind between man's nature itself after the fall and original sin, and that the two cannot be differentiated in the mind. Luther calls original sin nature sin, person sin, essential sin, not in order to identify without any distinction man's nature, person, or essence itself with original sin, but by such terminology to indicate the difference between original sin, which inheres in human nature, and the other so-called actual sins. For original sin is not a sin which man commits. It inheres in the nature, substance, and essence of man in such a way that even if no evil thought would ever arise in the heart of corrupted man, no idle word were spoken, no wicked act or deed took place, Nevertheless, man's nature is corrupted through original sin, innate in us through our sinful deed and the source of all other actual sins, such as evil thoughts, words, and deeds, as it is written, out of the heart come evil thoughts, and so forth, from Matthew 15, verse 19. And the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, Genesis 8:21 and 6, verse 5. It is important to observe that the word nature has several meanings. This enables the Manichaeans to conceal their error and to mislead many simple people. Sometimes the term means man's essence, as when we say God has created human nature. At other times, the word means the good or bad quality which inheres in the nature or essence of a thing, as when we say it is the nature of a serpent to sting, and it is the nature or quality of a man to sin, or man's nature is sin. Here the word nature does not mean the substance of man, but something which inheres in the nature or substance. As far as the Latin words substantia and occidens are concerned, they are not biblical terms, and besides they are unknown to the common man. They should therefore not be employed in sermons delivered to common, unlearned people, but simple folk should be spared them. In schools and learned circles, these words can profitably be retained in the discussion of original sin because they are familiar and convey no false impressions, and they clearly show the distinction between the essence of a particular thing and that which pertains to it only accidentally. This terminology sets forth very clearly the distinction between God's work and Satan's work. Satan cannot create a substance. He can only, with God's permission, corrupt accidentally the substance which God has created. Now moving on to Article 2 on free will. The question at issue in this controversy. The will of man may be discussed in four different states. 
one, before the fall, two, after the fall, three, after regeneration, four, after the resurrection of the flesh. In this controversy, the primary question revolves exclusively about man's will and ability in the second state. The question is, what powers does man possess in spiritual matters after the fall of our first parents and before his regeneration? Can man, by his own powers, before he is reborn through the Holy Spirit, dispose and prepare himself for the grace of God? Can he or can he not accept the grace of God offered in the Word and the Holy Sacraments? Affirmative Theses The Pure Teaching Concerning This Article on the Basis of God's Word 1. It is our teaching, faith, and confession that in spiritual matters man's understanding and reason are blind, and that he understands nothing by his own powers, as it is written in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, end quote, when he is examined concerning spiritual things. 2. Likewise we believe, teach, and confess that man's unregenerated will is not only turned away from God, but has also become an enemy of God, so that he desires and wills only that which is evil and opposed to God. As it is written, quote, The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Genesis 8, verse 21. Likewise, quote, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Romans 8, verse 7. As little as a corpse can quicken itself to bodily, earthly life, so little can man, who through sin is spiritually dead, raise himself to spiritual life. As it is written, when we were dead through our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 5. Therefore we are not of ourselves sufficient to claim anything as coming from us. Our sufficiency is from God. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5. God the Holy Spirit. 3. God the Holy Spirit, however, does not effect conversion without means. He employs to this end the preaching and the hearing of God's word, as it is written that the gospel is a power of God for salvation, Romans 1 verse 16, likewise that faith comes from the hearing of God's word, Romans 10 verse 17. It is God's will that men should hear his word and not stop their ears, Psalm 95 verse 8. The Holy Spirit is present with his word and opens hearts, so that like Lydia in Acts 16 verse 14, they heed it, and thus are converted solely through the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. For man's conversion is the Spirit's work alone. Without his grace, our will and effort, Romans 9.16, our planting, sowing, and watering are in vain unless he gives the growth, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 7. Christ also states, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, verse 5. In these few words, he denies all power to free will and ascribes everything to the grace of God, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16. And thus we come to the antitheses, contrary to false doctrine. Accordingly, we reject and condemn all the following errors as being contrary to the norm of the word of God. 
One, the mad dream of the so-called Stoic philosophers and of Manichaeans who taught that whatever happens must so happen and could not happen otherwise, that man always acts only under compulsion, even in his external acts, and that he commits evil deeds and acts like fornication, robbery, murder, theft, and similar sins under compulsion. So, important there. Lutherans are not hard determinists. Two, we also reject the error of the crass Pelagians, who taught that by his own powers, without the grace of the Holy Spirit, man can convert himself to God, believe the gospel, wholeheartedly obey God's law, and thus merit forgiveness of sins and eternal life. 3. We also reject the error of the semi-Pelagians who teach that man, by virtue of his own powers, could make a beginning of his conversion, but could not complete it without the grace of the Holy Spirit. 4. Likewise, the teaching that while before his conversion man is indeed too weak by his free will to make a beginning, convert himself to God, and wholeheartedly obey God's law by his own powers, yet after the Holy Spirit has made the beginning through the preaching of the word and in it has offered his grace, man's will is forthwith able by its own natural powers to add something, though it be little and feeble, to help, to cooperate, to prepare itself for grace, to dispose itself, to apprehend, to accept it, and to believe the gospel. 5. Likewise, that after his conversion, man is able to keep the law of God perfectly and entirely, and that this fulfilling constitutes our righteousness before God, whereby we merit eternal life. 6. Likewise, we reject and condemn the error of the enthusiasts, who imagine that God draws men to himself, enlightens them, justifies them and saves them without means, without the hearing of God's word and without the use of the holy sacrament. Um, an enthusiast means uh, God within person, or enthusiasm means God withinism. They're people who expect the Spirit's heavenly illumination without the preaching of God's word. Uh, 7. Likewise, that in conversion and rebirth, God wholly destroys the substance and essence of the old Adam, especially the rational soul, and that in conversion and rebirth, he creates out of nothing a new essence of the soul. 8. Likewise, when these statements are made without explanation, that man's will before, in, and after conversion resists the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is given to such as resist him purposefully and persistently. For as St. Augustine says, in conversion God makes willing people out of unwilling people and dwells in the willing ones. That's from against two letters of Pelagius to Boniface. Now, some ancient and modern teachers have used such ex expressions such as God draws, but draws the person who is willing, or man's will is not idle in conversion, but does something. Since these expressions have been introduced to confirm the role of natural free will in conversion, contrary to the doctrine of the grace of God, we hold that these expressions do not agree with the form of sound doctrine that, accordingly, it is well to avoid them in a discussion of conversion to God. On the other hand, it is correct to say that in conversion, through the attraction of the Holy Spirit, God changes stubborn and unwilling people into willing people, and that after conversion, in the daily exercise of repentance, 
the reborn will of man is not idle, but cooperates in all the works which the Holy Spirit performs in us. 9. Likewise, Luther's statement that man's will in conversion behaves altogether passively, that is, that it does nothing at all, must be understood as referring to the action of divine grace in kindling new movements within the will, that is, when the Spirit of God, through the word that has been heard, or through the use of the holy sacraments, takes hold of man's will and works the new birth and conversion. But after the Holy Spirit has performed and accomplished this, and the will of man has been changed and renewed solely by God's power and activity, man's new will becomes an instrument and means of God the Holy Spirit, so that man not only lays hold on grace, but also cooperates with the Holy Spirit in the works that follow. Prior to man's conversion, there are only two efficient causes, namely the Holy Spirit and the Word of God as the Holy Spirit's instrument whereby he effects conversion. Man should hear this word, though he cannot give it credence and acceptance by his own powers, but solely by the grace and operation of God the Holy Spirit. Now Article 3, The Righteousness of Faith Before God. The Question at Issue. It is the unanimous confession of our churches according to the word of God and the content of the Augsburg Confession that we poor sinners are justified before God and saved solely by faith in Christ, so that Christ alone is our righteousness. He is truly God and man, since in him the divine and human natures are personally united to one another, Jeremiah 23, verse 6, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Because of the foregoing, a question has arisen. According to which nature is Christ our righteousness? Two false and mutually contradictory teachings have invaded some churches. One party is held that Christ is our righteousness only according to his Godhead. When he dwells in us by faith over against this indwelling Godhead, the sins of all men are esteemed like a drop of water over against the immense ocean. Others, however, held that Christ is our righteousness before God only according to the human nature. That's uh, Andrew Osiander versus Francis Stancaro on both of those views. Affirmative Theses The Pure Doctrine of the Christian Church Against Both These Errors 1. In opposition to these two errors just recounted, we believe, teach, and confess unanimously that Christ is our righteousness, neither according to the divine nature alone, nor according to the human nature alone. On the contrary, the entire Christ, according to both natures, is our righteousness, solely in his obedience, which as God and man he rendered to his heavenly Father into death itself. Thereby he won for us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, as it is written, For as by one man's obedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Roman, uh, Romans 5 verse 19. 2. Accordingly we believe, teach, and confess that our righteousness before God consists in this, that God forgives us our sins purely by his grace, without any preceding, present, or subsequent work, merit, or worthiness, and reckons to us the righteousness of Christ's obedience, on account of which righteousness we are accepted by God into grace and are regarded as righteous. 3. 
We believe, teach, and confess that faith is the only means and instrument whereby we accept Christ, and in Christ obtain the righteousness which avails before God, and that for Christ's sake such faith is reckoned for righteousness. Romans 4 verse 5. We believe, teach, and confess that this faith is not a mere knowledge of the stories about Christ, but the kind of gift of God by which the word of the gospel, we recognize Christ aright as our Redeemer and trust in him, so that solely because of his obedience by grace we have forgiveness of sins, are regarded as holy and righteous by God the Father, and shall be saved eternally. 5. We believe, teach, and confess that according to the usage of Scripture, the word justify means in this article, absolve, that is, pronounce free from sin. Quote, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 17, verse 15. Likewise, quote, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Romans 8, verse 33. Sometimes, as in the Apology, the words regeneratio, rebirth, and vivificatio, making alive, are used in place of justification. And then they mean the same thing, even though otherwise these terms refer to the renovation of man and distinguish it from justification by faith. 6. We also believe, teach, and confess that although the genuinely believing and truly regenerated persons retain much weakness and many shortcomings down to their graves, they still have no reason to doubt either the righteousness which is reckoned to them through faith or the salvation of their souls, but they must regard it as certain that for Christ's sake, on the basis of the promises and the word of the Holy Gospel, they have a gracious God. 7. We believe, teach, and confess that if we would preserve the pure doctrine concerning the righteousness of faith before God, we must give special attention to the exclusive terms, uh, that is, to those words of the Holy Apostle Paul which separate the merit of Christ completely from our own works and give all glory to Christ alone. Thus the Holy Apostle Paul uses such expressions as by grace, without merit, without the law, without works, not by works, and so forth. That's Get ready for this. Romans chapter 6, verse 46, 3, verse 23, verse 21, 3, verse 24, 3, verse 28, chapter 11, verse 6, Galatians 2, verse 16, Ephesians 2, verse 9, and Titus 3, verse 5. All these expressions say in effect that we become righteous and are saved alone by faith in Christ. 8. We believe, teach, and confess that the contrition that precedes justification and the good works that follow it do not belong in the article of justification before God. Nevertheless, we should not imagine a kind of faith in this connection that could coexist and co-persist with a wicked intention to sin and to act contrary to one's conscience. On the contrary, after a person has been justified by faith, a true living faith becomes active through love. Galatians 5 verse 6. Thus, good works always follow justifying faith and are certainly to be found with it, since, since such faith is never alone, but is always accompanied by hope and love. Antitheses. Rejection of the Contrary Doctrine. Accordingly, we reject and condemn all the following errors. 
One, that Christ is our righteousness according only to the divine nature. Two, that Christ is our righteousness only according to the human nature. Three, that when the righteousness of faith is spoken of in the pronouncements of the apostles and prophets, the words to justify and to be justified do not mean to absolve or to be absolved from sin and to obtain the forgiveness of sins, but to mean, but mean to be made righteous in fact before God on account of the love and virtue of the Holy Spirit has infused in the works resulting therefrom. Four, that faith does not look alone to Christ's obedience, but also to his divine nature, insofar as it dwells and works within us, and that by such indwelling our sins are covered up. And us Lutherans here, if you see YouTube videos of certain theologians talking about Christosis, we need to be careful when, when it talks about Christ's nature and people claiming that justification happens by Christosis. Not denying the phenomenon, but saying it isn't exactly justification. Anyway, that's just a recorder's note. Five, that faith is a kind of trust in the obedience of Christ that can exist and remain in a person, though he does not truly repent and gives no evidence of resulting love, but continues to sin against his conscience. Six, that not God himself, but only divine gifts dwell in believers. Seven, that faith saves because by faith there is begun in us the renewal which consists in love toward God and our fellow man. 8. That faith indeed has the most prominent role in justification, but that also renewal and love belong to our righteousness before God. Not indeed as if it were the primary cause of our righteousness, but that nevertheless our righteousness before God is incomplete and imperfect without such love and renewal. 9. That believers are justified before God and saved both by the righteousness of Christ reckoned to them and by the incipient new obedience, or in part by the reckoning to them of Christ's righteousness and in part by our incipient new obedience. 10. That the promise of grace becomes our own by faith in the heart and by the confession of the lips along with other virtues. And finally, 11, that faith does not justify without good works in such a way that good works are necessary for righteousness, and that unless they are present, a person cannot be justified. And that 11th point being the clearest separation between us and Rome. Article 4 on Good Works The Chief Issue in the Controversy Concerning Good Works 1. Two controversies have arisen in some churches concerning the doctrine of good works. The first division among some theologians was occasioned when one party asserted that good works are necessary to salvation, that it is impossible to be saved without good works, and that no one has ever been saved without good works. The other party asserted that good works are detrimental to salvation, and that's uh, George Major and Nicholas von Amsdorf arguing with each other there. 2. The second controversy arose among certain theologians concerning the use of the words necessary and free. The one party contended that we should not use the word necessary when speaking of the new obedience, since it does not flow from necessity or coercion, but from a spontaneous spirit. The other party held, with reference to the word necessary, that the new obedience is not a matter of our choice, but that regenerated persons are bound to render such obedience. At first, this was merely a semantic issue. 
Later on, a real controversy developed. The one party contended that the law should not be preached at all to Christians, but that the people should be admonished to do good works solely on the basis of the gospel. This the other party denied. So, affirmative theses. The pure doctrine of the Christian church in this controversy. In order to explain this controversy from the ground up and to resolve it, this is our doctrine, faith, and confession. 1. That good works, like fruits of a good tree, certainly and indubitably follow genuine faith, if it is a living and not a dead faith. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that good works should be completely excluded from a discussion of the article of man's salvation, as well as from the article of our justification before God. The apostle affirms in clear terms. So also David declares that salvation pertains only to the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, saying, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered Romans 4 verses 6 through 8 and again for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not because of works lest any man should boast Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 3 we believe teach and confess further that all men but especially those who are regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit are obligated to do good works Four, in this sense, the words necessary, ought, and must are correctly in a Christian way applied to the regenerated and are in no way contrary to the pattern of sound words and terminology. Five, however, when applied to the regenerated, the words necessity and necessary are to be understood as involving not coercion, but the due obedience which genuine believers, insofar as they are reborn, render not by coercion or compulsion of the law, but from a spontaneous spirit, because they are no longer under the law, but under grace. Romans 6, 14, 7, verse 6, and 8, verse 14. 6. Therefore, we also believe, teach, and confess that the statement, the regenerated do good works from a free spirit, should not be understood as though it were left to the regenerated person's option whether to do or not to do good and that he might keep his faith even if he deliberately were to persist in sin. 7. This, however, should be understood exactly as our Lord and the apostles themselves explain it, as applying only to the liberated spirit which does good works, not from a fear of punishment like a slave, but out of a love of righteousness like a child. Romans 8, verse 15. However, in the elect children of God, this spontaneity is not perfect, but they are still encumbered with much weakness, as St. Paul complains of himself in Romans 7, verses 14 through 25, and Galatians 5, 17. 9. Nevertheless, for Christ's sake, the Lord does not reckon this weakness against his elect, as it is written, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. 10. We also believe, teach, and confess that not our works, but the, only the Holy Spirit working through faith preserves faith and salvation in us. The good works are testimonies of the Holy Spirit's presence and indwelling. Now, regarding the false antitheses, 
1. Accordingly, we reject and condemn spoken and written formulations which teach that good works are necessary to salvation. Likewise, that no one has ever been saved without good works. Likewise, that it is impossible to be saved without good works. 2. We also reject and condemn as offensive and as subversive of Christian discipline that bald statement that good works are detrimental to salvation, according to Nicholas von Amsdorf. Especially in these last times, it is just as necessary to exhort people to Christian discipline and good works, and to remind them how necessary it is that they exercise themselves in good works as an evidence of their faith and their gratitude toward God, as it is to warn against mingling good works in the article of justification. Such an Epicurean dream concerning faith can damn people as much as a papistic and pharisaic confidence in one's own works and merit. 3. We also reject and condemn the teaching that faith and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are not lost through malicious sin, but that the holy ones and the elect retain the Holy Spirit even though they fall into adultery and other sins and persist in them. Now on to Article 5 on Law and Gospel. The chief question at issue in this controversy. The question has been, is the preaching of the Holy Gospel, strict, uh, strictly speaking, only a preaching of grace, which proclaims the forgiveness of sins, or is it also a preaching of repentance and reproof that condemns unbelief, since unbelief is condemned not in the law, but wholly through the gospel? Affirmative Theses, the Pure Doctrine of God's Word. 1. We believe, teach, and confess that the distinction between law and gospel is an especially glorious light that is to be maintained with great diligence in the church, so that, according to St. Paul's admonition, the word of God may be divided rightly. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that, strictly speaking, the law is a divine doctrine which teaches what is right and God-pleasing, and which condemns everything that is sinful and contrary to God's will. 3. Therefore, everything which condemns sin is and belongs to the proclamation of the law. 4. But the gospel, strictly speaking, is the kind of doctrine that teaches what a man who has not kept the law and is condemned by it should believe, namely that Christ has satisfied and paid for all guilt, and without man's merit has obtained and won for him forgiveness of sins, the righteousness that avails before God and eternal life. That's Romans 1 verse 17 and 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. 5. The word gospel is not used in a single sense in Holy Scripture, and this was the original occasion of the controversy. Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess that when the word gospel means the entire doctrine of Christ, when he proclaimed personally in his teaching ministry, in which his apostles also set forth, examples of this meaning occur in Mark 1.15 and Acts 20.24, then it is correct to say or write that the gospel is a proclamation both of repentance and forgiveness of sins. 6. But when law and gospel are opposed to each other, as when Moses is spoken of as a teacher of the law, in contrast to Christ as a preacher of the gospel, then we believe, teach, and confess that the gospel is not a proclamation of contrition and reproof, 
but is, strictly speaking, precisely a comforting and joyful message which does not reprove or terrify, but comforts consciences that are frightened by the law, directs them solely to the merit of Christ, and raises them up again by the delightful proclamation of God's grace and favor acquired through the merits of Christ. 7. Now as to the disclosure of sin, as long as men hear only the law and hear nothing about Christ, the veil of Moses, 2 Corinthians 3 verses 13 through 16, covers their eyes. As a result, they fail to learn the true nature of sin from the law, and thus they become either conceited hypocrites like the Pharisees, or they despair as Judas, Judas did, and so forth. Therefore, Christ takes the law into his own hands and explains it spiritually. Matthew 5, 21 through 48 and Romans 7, verse 14. Then God's wrath is revealed from heaven over all sinners. Romans 8, 18, sorry, 1, 18, and men learn how fierce it is. Thus they are directed back to the law and now they learn from it for the first time the real nature of their sin, an acknowledgement from which Moses could never have wrung from them. Therefore, the proclamation of the suffering and death of Christ, the Son of God, is an earnest and terrifying preaching and advertisement of God's wrath, which really directs people into the law, after the veil of Moses has been removed for them. So they now know for the first time what great things God demands of us in the law, none of which we could fulfill, and that we should now seek all our righteousness in Christ. 8. Nevertheless, as long as... All this, namely the passion and death of Christ, proclaims God's wrath and terrifies people. It is not, strictly speaking, the preaching of the gospel, but the preaching of Moses and the law. And therefore it is an alien work of Christ by which he comes to his proper office, namely to preach grace, to comfort, to make alive. And this is the preaching of the gospel, strictly speaking. Antithesis Rejected contrary doctrine, one, hence we reject and deem it as false and detrimental when men teach that the gospel, strictly speaking, is a proclamation of conviction and reproof, and not exclusively a proclamation of grace. Thereby the gospel is again changed into a teaching of the law, the merit of Christ and the holy scriptures are obscured, Christians are robbed of their true comfort, and the doors are again opened to the papacy. Now, Article 6. The third function of the law. The chief question at issue in this controversy. The law has been given to men for three reasons. One, to maintain external discipline against unruly and disobedient men. Two, to lead men to a knowledge of their sin. Three, after they are reborn, and although the flesh still inheres in them, to give them on that account a definite rule according to which they should pattern and regulate their entire life. It is concerning the third function of the law that a controversy has arisen among a few theologians. The question, therefore, is whether or not the law is to be urged upon reborn Christians. One party said yes, the other says no. Affirmative Theses The Correct Christian Teaching in this Controversy 1. We believe, teach, and confess that although people who genuinely believe and whom God has truly converted are freed through Christ from the curse and the coercion of the law, they are not on that account without the law. 
On the contrary, they have been redeemed by the Son of God precisely that they should exercise themselves day and night in the law. Psalm 119 verse 1. In the same way, our first parents, even before the fall, did not live without the law. For the law of God was written into their hearts when they were created in the image of God. Genesis 2.16 and 3 verse 3. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that the preaching of the law is to be diligently applied, not only to unbelievers and the impenitent, but also to people who are genuinely believing, truly converted, regenerated, and justified through faith. 3. For although they are indeed reborn and have been renewed in the spirit of their mind, such regeneration and renewal is incomplete in this world. In fact, it has only begun, and in the spirit of their mind, the believers are in a constant war against their flesh, that is, their corrupt nature and kind, which clings to them until death. On account of this old Adam, who inheres in people's intellect, will, and all their powers, it is necessary for the law of God constantly to light their way, lest in their merely human devotion they undertake self-decreed and self-chosen acts of serving God. This is, a further uh, this is further necessary lest the old Adam go his own self-willed way. He must be coerced against his own will not only by the admonitions and threats of the law, but also by its punishments and plagues, to follow the Spirit and surrender himself a captive. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27, Romans 6 verse 12, Galatians 6 verse 14, Psalm 119 1, and Hebrews 13 21. 4. Concerning the distinction between works of the law and fruits of the Spirit, we believe, teach, and confess that works done according to the law are, and are called, works of the law as long as they are extorted from people only under the coercion of punishment and the threat of God's wrath. 5. Fruits of the Spirit, however, are those works which the Spirit of God, who dwells in the believers, works through the regenerated, in which the regenerated perform insofar as they are reborn and do them as spontaneously as if they knew of no command, threat, or reward. In this sense, the children of God live in the law and walk according to the law of God. In his epistle, St. Paul calls it the law of Christ and the law of the mind. Thus, God's children are, quote, not under the law, but under grace. Romans 7, verse 23, 8, verse 1, and 8, verse 14. 6. Therefore, both for penitent and impenitent, for regenerated and unregenerated people, the law is and remains one and the same law, namely the unchangeable will of God. The difference, as far as obedience is concerned, rests exclusively with man, for the unregenerated man, just like the regenerated according to the flesh, does what is demanded of him by the law under coercion and unwillingly. But the believer, without any coercion and with a willing spirit, insofar as he is reborn, does what no threat of the law could ever have wrung from him. Antithesis 1. Accordingly, we condemn as dangerous and subversive of Christian discipline and true piety the erroneous teaching that the law is not to be urged, in the manner and measure above described, upon Christians and genuine believers, but only upon unbelievers, non-Christians, and the impenitent. Now on to Article 7, The Holy Supper of Christ. The Zwinglian teachers 
cannot be numbered among the theologians identified with the Augsburg Confession, since they separated themselves from the latter at the very outset when the Augsburg Confession was being submitted. Nevertheless, they endeavored surreptitiously to insinuate themselves and to disseminate their errors under the name of this Christian Confession, and therefore we have wished to report as far as necessary concerning this controversy also. The chief question at issue between our doctrine and the sacramentarian doctrine in this article. The question is, in the Holy Communion are the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ truly and essentially present if they are distributed with the bread and wine and if they are received orally by all those who use the sacrament, be they worthy or unworthy, godly or godless, believers or unbelievers, the believers for life and salvation, the believers for judgment. The sacramentarians say no, we say yes. In order to explicate this controversy, it is necessary to mention, first of all, that there are two kinds of sacramentarians. Some are crass sacramentarians who set forth in clear German words what they believe in their hearts, namely that in the Holy Supper only bread and wine are present, distributed, and received orally. Others, however, are subtle sacramentarians, the most harmful kind, who in part talk our language very plausibly and claim to believe a true presence of the true, essential, and living body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper, but assert that this takes place spiritually by faith. But under this plausible terminology, they really retain the former crass opinion that in the Holy Supper nothing but bread and wine are present and received with the mouth. To them, the word spiritual means no more than the presence of Christ's spirit, or the power of Christ's absent body, or his merit. They deny that the body of Christ is present in any manner or way, since they're, in their opinion it is confined to the highest heaven above, whither we should ascend with the thoughts of our faith and there, but not in the bread and wine of the Holy Supper. Seek the body and blood of Christ. Affirmative Theses, Confession of the Pure Doctrine of the Holy Supper Against the Sacramentarians. Again, why we're not Baptists. 1. We believe, teach, and confess that in the Holy Supper the body and blood of Christ are truly and essentially present and are truly distributed and received with the bread and wine. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that the words of the testament of Christ are to be understood in no other way than in their literal sense, and not as though the bread symbolized the absent body and the wine the absent blood of Christ, but that because of the sacramental union, they are truly the body and blood of Christ. 3. Concerning the consecration, we believe, teach, and confess that no man's work nor the recitation of the minister affect this presence of the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper, but it is to be ascribed solely and alone to the almighty power of our Lord Jesus Christ. 4. But at the same time, we believe, teach, and confess with one accord that in the celebration of the Holy Supper, the words of Christ's institution should under no circumstances be omitted, but should be spoken publicly as it is written, the cup of blessing which we bless. 1 Corinthians 10.16 and 11 verses 23 through 25. This blessing occurs through the recitation of the words of Christ. 5. 
The grounds on which we stand in this controversy with the sacramentarians are those which Dr. Luther proposed in his great confession. Quote, the first ground is this article of our Christian faith. Jesus Christ is true, essential, natural, complete God and man in one person, inseparable and undivided. The second ground is, God's right hand is everywhere. Christ really and truly, set at this right hand of God according to his human nature, rules presently, and has in his hands and under his feet everything in heaven and on earth. No other human being, no angel, but only Mary's son, is so set down at the right hand of God whence he is able to do these things. The third ground is that God's word is not false, nor does it lie. The fourth ground is that God has and knows various modes of being at a given place, and not only the single mode which the philosophers call local or spatial. Six, we believe, teach, and confess that with the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ are received not only spiritually by faith, but also orally. However, not in a Capernaitic manner, but because of the sacramental union in a supernatural and heavenly manner. By the way, by Capernaitic, it's a reference to John chapter 6, where in Capernaum, the people out there reject Jesus and they leave him because he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot be saved. And they're like, what? How are we going to chew on this guy? The Capernaitic teachers were accusing the Lutherans of being nasty cannibals, right? So the idea is, well, look, we are truly eating and drinking the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's in a special sacramental way that's kind of mysterious. It doesn't have to be I'm chewing on Jesus's toe when I go up for communion. But continuing on reading here, the words of Christ teach this clearly when they direct us to take, eat, and drink, all of which took place in the case of the apostles, since it is written, and they all drank of it. Mark 14, verse 23. Likewise, St. Paul says, the bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That's 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. That is, whoever eats this bread eats the body of Christ. This has also been the unanimous teaching of the leading church fathers, such as Chrysostom, Cyprian, Leo I, Gregory, Ambrose, and Augustine. 7. We believe, teach, and confess that not only the genuine believers and those who are worthy, but also the unworthy and the unbelievers receive the true body and blood of Christ. But if they are not converted and do not repent, they receive them not to life and salvation, but to their judgment and condemnation. For although they reject Christ as a redeemer, they must accept him even contrary to their will as a strict judge. He is just as much present to exercise and manifest his judgment on unrepentant guests as he is to work life and consolation in the hearts of believing and worthy guests. 8. We believe, teach, and confess that there is only one kind of unworthy guest, namely those who do not believe. Of such it is written, he who does not believe is condemned already, John 3, verse 18. The unworthy use of the Holy Sacrament increases, magnifies, and aggravates this condemnation. That's 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and 29. 9. We believe, teach, and confess that no genuine believer, no matter how weak he may be, as long as he retains a living faith, 
will receive the Holy Supper to his condemnation. For Christ instituted this supper particularly for Christians who are weak in faith, but repentant, to comfort them and to strengthen their weak faith. 10. We believe, teach, and confess that the entire worthiness of the guests at this heavenly feast is and consists solely and alone in the most holy obedience and complete merit of Christ, which we make our own through genuine faith, and of which we are assured through the sacrament. Worthiness consists not at all in our own virtues or in our internal and external preparations. Antitheses, the contrary and condemned doctrines of the sacramentarians. On the other side, we unanimously reject and condemn all the following errors, which are contrary and contradictory to the doctrine set forth above and to our simple faith and confession about Christ's Supper. 1. The papistic transubstantiation, when it is taught in the papacy that the bread and wine in the Holy Supper lose their substance and natural essence and are thus annihilated in such a way that they are transmuted into the body of Christ and that only the exterior appearance remains. 2. The papistic sacrifice of the Mass for the sins of the living and the dead. 3. The administration of only one kind of the sacrament to the laity in the withholding of the cup from them, contrary to the clear word of Christ's testament, so that they are deprived of the blood of Christ. 4. The teaching that the words of Christ's testament are not to be understood or believed in their simple sense as they read, but that they are dark sayings whose meaning must first be sought in other passages. 5. That in the Holy Sacrament, the body of Christ is not received orally with the bread, but that with the mouth we receive only bread and wine, and that we receive the body of Christ only spiritually by faith. Uh, more of what Zwingli was saying. 6. That bread and wine and the Holy Supper are no more than tokens whereby Christians recognize one another. And that is, uh, again, something Zwingli kind of pushed. 7. That the bread and wine are only figures, images, and types of the far distant body and blood of Christ. 8. That the bread and wine are no more than reminders, seals, and pledges to assure us that when our faith ascends into heaven, it there partakes of the body and blood of Christ as truly as we eat and drink bread and wine in the supper. And that's, um, that's more of Calvin's idea, which Calvin was kind of confusing on what exactly he believes in communion. 9. We reject that the assurance and strengthening of our faith in the Holy Supper is affected solely by the external signs of bread and wine and not by the truly present body and blood of Christ. 10. That in the Holy Supper only the power, operation, and merit of the absent body and blood of Christ are distributed. A more Calvin changing his views, I guess. 11. That the body of Christ is so enclosed in heaven that it can in no way be present at one and the same time in many places and still less in all places where his holy supper is observed. And again, that's a third and still different from the other two view of Calvin. Twelve, that Christ could not have promised that his body and blood would be essentially present in the Holy Supper, nor could he have kept such a promise since the nature and properties of his assumed human nature could neither permit nor admit this. Thirteen, 
that God, even with all his omnipotence, is unable, a dreadful statement, to cause his body to be essentially present at more than one place at a single given time. And that comes from uh, Theodore Beza and Peter Martyr of Emilia. 14. That faith and not the omnipotent words of Christ's testament affect and cause the presence of the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Supper. 15. That the believers should not seek the body of Christ in the bread and wine of the Holy Supper, but should lift their eyes from the bread to heaven and there seek the body of Christ. Uh, again, that's another Calvin thing. 16. That in the Holy Supper, unbelieving and impenitent Christians do not receive the body and blood of Christ, but only bread and wine. And that's a traditional point of divergence between Lutherans and Reformed people. Because as Lutherans, we say, you're never going to be purely worthy of taking the sacrament. That's kind of the point, is we are not worthy, so we need the forgiveness and strengthening that Jesus provides for us with his body and blood in the sacrament. But continuing on, sorry for all the little reader's notes here. 17. That the worthiness of the guests at this heavenly meal does not consist only in true faith in Christ, but also depends on people's outward preparation. And here we are separated a little bit from the Orthodox who, depending on what Orthodox parish you're going to, might have you do fasting or might have you make sure that you go to confession first. 18. That genuine believers who have a genuine and living faith in Christ can also receive this sacrament to their condemnation because they are still imperfect in their external behavior. 19. That the external visible elements of bread and wine in the Holy Sacrament should be adored. That's a Roman Catholic thing uh, from the Council of Trent. 20. By the same token, we commend to the righteous judgment of God all presumptuous, sarcastic, and blasphemous questions and statements which decency forbids us to recite in which the sacramentarians advance most blasphemously and offensively in a coarse, carnal, caperneatic, and abhorrent way, concerning the supernatural and celestial mysteries of this sacrament. 21. Accordingly, we herewith condemn, without any qualification, the Capernaetic eating the body of Christ as though one rent Christ's flesh with one's teeth and digested it like other food. The sacramentarians deliberately insist on crediting us with this doctrine against the witness of their own consciences over our many protests, in order to make our teaching obnoxious to their hearers. On the contrary, in accordance with the simple words of Christ's testament, we hold and believe in a true, though supernatural, eating of Christ's body and drinking of his blood, which we cannot comprehend with our human sense or reason. Here we take our intellect captive in obedience to Christ, as we do in other articles also, and accept this mystery in no other way than by faith, and as it is revealed in the word. <clears throat> now we move on to Article 8. The Person of Christ. In connection with the controversy on the Holy Supper, a disagreement has arisen between the authentic theologians of the Augsburg Confession and the Calvinists, who have misled some other theologians also, concerning the person of Christ, the two natures in Christ, and their properties. The chief question at issue in this controversy. The chief question has been, because of personal union in the person of Christ, do the divine and human natures, together with their properties, really, that is, in deed and truth, share with each other, and how far does this sharing extend? 
The sacramentarians have asserted that in Christ the divine and human natures are personally united in such a way that neither of the two really, that is, in deed and in truth, shares in the properties of the other, but have in common only the name. They declare boldly that the personal union makes merely the names common, so that God is called man and a man is called God, but that God really, that is, in deed and in truth, has nothing in common with the humanity, and that the humanity really has nothing in common with the deity, its majesty, and its properties. Dr. Luther and his followers have contended for the opposite view against the sacramentarians. Affirmative Theses The Pure Teaching of the Christian Church Concerning the Person of Christ To explain and to settle this controversy according to our Christian faith, we believe, teach, and confess the following. 1. That the divine and the human natures are personally united in Christ in such a way that there are not two Christs, one the Son of God and the other the Son of Man, but a single individual is both the Son of God and the Son of Man, Luke 1.35 and Romans 9 verse 5. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that the divine and the human nature are not fused into one essence, and that the one is not changed into the other, but each retains its essential properties, and that they never become the properties of the other nature. 3. The properties of the divine nature are omnipotence, eternity, infinity, and according to its natural property by itself, omnipresence, omniscience, etc., which never become properties of the human nature. 4. The attributes of the human nature are to be a corporeal creature, to be flesh and blood, to be finite and circumscribed, to suffer, to die, to ascend and to descend, to move from place to place, to endure hunger, thirst, cold, heat, and the like, which never become the properties of the divine nature. 5. Since both natures are united personally, that is, in one person, we believe, teach, and confess that this personal union is not a combination or connection of such a kind that neither nature has anything in common with the other personally, that is, on account of his personal union, as when two boards are glued together and neither gives anything to or takes anything from the other. On the contrary, here is the highest communion which God truly has with man. Out of this personal union and the resultant exalted and ineffable sharing, there flows everything human that is said or believed about God, and everything divine that is said or believed about Christ the man. The ancient fathers have illustrated this union and sharing of the natures by the analogy of incandescent iron in the union of body and soul in man. 6. Therefore we believe, teach, and confess that God is man and man is God, which could not be the case if the divine and human natures did not have a real and true communion with each other. And again, they're only speaking about Jesus here. For how could the man, Mary's son, truly be called be call or be God for the son of the Most High God, if his humanity were not personally and truly united with the Son of God, and hence really, that is in deed and in truth, shared only the name of God with the divine nature? 7. Therefore we believe, teach, and confess that Mary conceived and bore not only a plain, ordinary, mere man, but the veritable Son of God. For this reason she is rightly called, and truly is, the Mother of God, or Theotokos. 8. 
Therefore, we also believe, teach, and confess that it was not a plain, ordinary, mere man who for us suffered, died, and was buried, descended into hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and was exalted to the majesty and omnipotent power of God, but a man whose human nature has such a profound and ineffable union and communion with the Son of God that it has become one person with him. 9. Therefore the Son of God has truly suffered for us. But according to the property of the human nature which he assumed into the unity of his divine person and made his own, so that he could suffer and be our high priest for our reconciliation with God, as it is written in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, they have crucified the Lord of glory. And in Acts 20, 28, we are purchased with God's own blood. 10. Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess that the Son of Man, according to his human nature, is really, that is, indeed and in truth, exalted to the right hand of the omnipotent majesty and power of God. Because he was assumed into God when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, and his human nature was personally united with the Son of the Most High. Um, there is an alternate reading, by the way, of point 10 there. Andrei's original draft adds, Accordingly, he could not be exalted more highly after his resurrection, since he did not have to wait until after his resurrection to become God, or to have his human nature united personally with the Son of God. But he was God and man as soon as he was conceived in his mother's womb, kind of protecting against um, what's called adoptionism, the idea that Jesus was just a human guy that became God later on. We're protecting against that and making sure that the mystery of the hypostatic union is preserved. But I digress. 11. According to the personal union, he always possessed this majesty, but in the state of his humiliation, he dispensed with it and could therefore truly increase in age, wisdom, and favor with God and men, for he did not always disclose his majesty, but only when it pleased him. Finally, after his resurrection, he laid aside completely the form of a slave, not the human nature, that's Philippians 2, 7, and was established in the full use, revelation, and manifestation of his divine majesty. Thus he entered into his glory in such a way that now, not only as God, but also as man, he knows all things, can do all things, is present to all creatures, and has all things in heaven and on earth and under the earth, beneath his feet and in his hands, as he himself testifies, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28:18 and John 13, verse 3. And as St. Paul states, he ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, Ephesians 4, verse 10. He exercises his power everywhere, omnipresently, he can do everything, and he knows everything. 12. Therefore he is able, and it is easy for him to impart to us his true body and blood which are present in the Holy Supper, not according to the mode or property of the human nature, but according to the mode and property of God's right hand, as Dr. Luther says, on the basis of our Christian faith as we teach this to our children. This presence is not mundane or caperneetic, although it is true and essential as the words of Christ's testament declare, this is my body, etc. Our doctrine, faith, and confession do not divide the person of Christ as Nestorius did. He denied the genuine sharing of the properties, or communicatio idiomatum, communication of the natures, in Christ, and thus he actually divided the person, as Luther explains in his treatise on the councils. Nor do we mingle the natures and their properties together in one essence, as Eutyches erroneously taught. Nor do we deny or abolish the human nature in the person of Christ, or change the one nature into the other. 
Christ is and remains to all eternity God and man in one indivisible person. Next to the Holy Trinity, this is the highest mystery. And the Apostle testifies in the sole foundation of our comfort, life, and salvation. That's uh, 1 Timothy 3.16. Antitheses, contrary false doctrine concerning the person of Christ. Accordingly, we reject and condemn as contrary to the word of God and our simple Christian creed the following erroneous articles. 1. That in Christ God and man are not one person, but that the Son of God is one person and the Son of man another, as Nestorius foolishly asserted. 2. That the divine and human natures are mingled into one essence, and that the human nature has been changed into the deity, as Eutyches dreamed. 3. That Christ is not true, natural, and eternal God, as Arius held. 4. That Christ did not have a true human nature with a body and a soul, as Marcion imagined. 5. That personal union achieves only common names and titles. As uh, If you look up Al- uh, Aloysius, Zwingli's uh, word there, A-L-L-O-E-O-S-I-S, Zwingli played some really weird language games. 6. That it is only a verbalism and a figure of speech when we say God is man, man is God, since really, that is in fact, the deity has nothing in common with the humanity, nor the humanity with the deity. Again, more Zwingli. 7. That it is a sheer matter of words when we say that the Son of God died for the sins of the world, or that the Son of Man has become almighty. 8. That Christ's human nature has become an infinite essence, like the divine nature. That it is omnipresent in the same manner as the divine nature, because this essential power and property has been severed from God and communicated to and infused into the human nature. 9. That the human nature has been raised to the level of, and has become equal to, the divine nature in its substance and essence, or in its essential properties. 10. That the human nature of Christ is locally extended to every place in heaven and earth, something that is not true of the divine nature either. 11. That because of the property of the human nature, it is impossible for Christ to be present at the same time at more than one place, still less to be present with his body everywhere. Uh, Calvin's Institutes talks about that. 12. That only the mere humanity suffered for us and redeemed us, and that in the Passion, the Son of God had no communion with the human nature, in fact, as though it did not concern him at all. 13. That Christ is present with us on earth in the word, in the sacraments, and in all our necessities only pertaining to and according to his deity, and that his presence does not at all concern his human nature, and that after Christ has redeemed us by his suffering and death, he no longer has anything to do with us according to his human nature. 14. That the Son of God, who assumed the human nature after he laid aside the form of a slave, does not perform all works of his omnipotence in, through, and with his human nature, but only a few and only at the place where the human nature is locally present. 15. That in spite of Christ's express assertion, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and St. Paul's statement, in him dwells the whole fullness of deity bodily, Colossians 2 verse 9, Christ, according to the human nature, is wholly incapable of omnipotence and other properties of the divine nature. 16. That according to his human nature, Christ has indeed been given greater power in heaven and on earth, that is, greater and more than all angels and other creatures, 
but that he does not share in the omnipotence of God, and that this has not been given to him. Therefore they invent an intermediate power that is a power that lies somewhere between God's omnipotence and the power of other creatures, and they imagine that through the exaltation of the human nature of Christ received a power which is less than God's omnipotence but greater than the power of other creatures. 17. That according to his human spirit, Christ has certain limitations as to how much he is supposed to know, and that he does not know more than is fitting and necessary to perform his office as judge. 18. That Christ does not as yet have a perfect knowledge of God and all his works, though it is written that in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2 verse 3. 19. That according to his human spirit, Christ cannot know what has existed from eternity, what is happening everywhere today, nor what will take pl yet take place in eternity. 20. They misinterpret and blasphemously, perver blasphemously pervert the words of Christ, all authority has been given to me, in Matthew 28:18, to mean that in the resurrection and his ascension, all power in heaven and on earth was restored or again returned to Christ according to the divine nature, as though in the state of humiliation he had laid it aside and forsaken it, even according to his deity. This doctrine not only perverts the words of Christ's testament, but it opens a way for the accursed Arian heresy. Hence, unless we refute these errors on the firm basis of the divine word and our simple Christian faith, we shall finally have Christ's eternal deity denied and we shall lose Christ altogether along with our salvation. And now Article 9, Christ's Descent into Hell. The chief question at issue in the controversy about this article. There has been a dispute among some theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning this article also. The questions raised were, when and how, according to our simple Christian creed, did Christ go to hell? Did it happen before or after his death? Did it occur only according to the soul, or only according to the deity, or according to body and soul, spiritually or corporeally? Does this article belong to Christ's suffering, or to his glorious victory and triumph? This article, like the preceding one, cannot be comprehended with our senses and reason, but must be apprehended by faith alone. Therefore, it is our unanimous opinion that we should not engage in disputations concerning this article, but believe and teach it uh, in all simplicity, as Dr. Luther of Blessed Memory taught in his sermon preached at Torgau in the year 1533, where he explains this article in a holy Christian manner, eliminates all unnecessary questions, and admonishes all Christians to simplicity of faith. It is enough to know that Christ went to hell, destroyed hell for all believers, and has redeemed them from the power of death of the devil and of eternal damnation of the hellish, hellish jaws. How this took place is something that we should postpone until the other world, where there will be revealed to us not only this point, but many others as well, which our blind reason cannot comprehend in this life, but which we simply accept. Now, Article 10, Church Usages, called adiaphora or ind indifferent things. There has also been a division among theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning these uh, those ceremonies or church usages, which are neither commanded nor forbidden in the word of God, but have been introduced into the church at the interests of good order and the general welfare. The chief question at issue in this controversy. The chief question has been, in times of persecution, when a confession is called for and when the enemies of the gospel have not come to an agreement with us in doctrine, 
may we, with an inviolate conscience, yield to their pressure and demands, reintroduce some ceremonies that have fallen into disuse, and that in themselves are indifferent things and are neither commanded nor forbidden by God, and thus come to an understanding with them in such ceremonies and indifferent things. One party said yes to this, the other party said no. Affirmative Theses, the correct true doctrine and confession about this article. 1. To settle this controversy, we believe, teach, and confess unanimously that the ceremonies or church usages, which are neither commanded nor forbidden in the word of God, but which have been introduced solely for the sake of good order and the general welfare, are in and for themselves no divine worship or even a part of it. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Matthew 15, verse 9. 2. We believe, teach, and confess that the community of God, or churches of God, in every locality and every age has authority to change such ceremonies according to circumstances as it may be most profitable and edifying to the community of God. 3. But in this manner all frivolity and offenses are to be avoided, and particularly the weak in faith are to be spared. 1 Corinthians 8 verses 9 through 13 and Romans 14 verses 13. 4. We believe, teach, and confess that in time of persecution, when a clear-cut confession of faith is demanded of us, we dare not yield to the enemies in such indifferent things, as the Apostle Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5, verse 11. Do not be mismated with unbelievers, for what fellowship has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. To them we did not yield submission even for a moment that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Galatians 2 verse 5. In such a case it is no longer a question of indifferent things, but a matter which has to do with the truth of the gospel, Christian liberty, and the sanctioning of public idolatry, as well as preventing offense to the weak in faith. In all these things we have no concessions to make that we should witness an unequivocal confession and suffer in consequence what God sends us and what he lets the enemies inflict on us. 5. We believe, teach, and confess that no church should condemn another because it has fewer or more external ceremonies not commanded by God. As long as there is mutual agreement in doctrine and in all its articles, as well as in the right use of the holy sacraments, according to the familiar axiom, Disagreement in fasting does not dis destroy agreement in faith. And that's from Irenaeus, by the way, one of the church fathers. Antitheses, false doctrine concerning this article. Therefore, we reject and condemn as false and contrary to God's word the following teachings. 1. That human precepts and institutions in the church are to be regarded as in themselves divine worship or a part of it. 2. When such ceremonies, precepts, and institutions are forcibly imposed upon the community of God as necessary things in violation of the Christian liberty which it has in external matters. 3. That in a time of persecution and when a public confession is required, one may make concessions to or come to an understanding with the enemies of the Holy Gospel, which serve to impair the truth in such indifferent things and ceremonies. 4. When such external ceremonies and indifferent things are abolished in a way which suggests that the community of God does not have the liberty to avail itself of one or more such ceremonies, 
according to its circumstances as it may be most beneficial to the church. Now on article 11, God's eternal foreknowledge and election. No public dissension has developed among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession concerning this article, but since it is such a comforting article when it is correctly treated, we have included an explanation of it in this document, lest at some future date offensive dissension concerning it might be introduced into the church. And recorder's note, unfortunately, there is... This is something that gets argued almost to death in the American Lutheran churches. But moving on from that, affirmative. <laughs> affirmative theses, pure and true doctrine concerning this article. One, to start with, the distinction between the foreknowledge and eternal election of God is to be diligently noted. <clears throat> Two, God's foreknowledge is nothing else than that God knows all things before they happen. As it is written, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel 2, verse 28. This foreknowledge extends alike over good people and evil people. But it is not a cause of evil or of sin which compels anyone to do something wrong. The original source of this is the devil and man's wicked and perverse will. Neither is it the cause of man's perdition, for this, for this man himself is responsible. God's foreknowledge merely controls the evil and imposes a limit on its duration, so that in spite of its intrinsic wickedness, it must minister to the salvation of his elect. 4. Predestination, or the eternal election of God, however, is concerned only with the pious children of God in whom he is well pleased. It is a cause of their salvation, for he alone brings it about and ordains everything that belongs to it. Our salvation is so firmly established upon it that the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. John 10, 28, Matthew 16, verse 18. 5. We are not to investigate this predestination in the secret counsel of God, but it is to be looked for in his word where he has revealed it. 6. The word of God, however, leads us to Christ, who is the book of life, in which all who are to be eternally saved are inscribed and elected, as it is written, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4. 7. This Christ calls all sinners to himself and promises them refreshment. He earnestly desires that all men should come to him and let themselves be helped. To these he offers himself in his word, and it is his will that they hear the word and do not stop their ears or despise it. In addition, he promises the power and operation of the Holy Spirit and divine assistance for steadfastness and eternal life. 8. Therefore, we should not judge this election of ours to eternal life on the basis either of reason or of God's law. This would either lead us to a reckless, dissolute, epicurean life, or drive men to despair and awaken dangerous thoughts in their hearts. As long as men follow their reason, they can hardly escape such reflections as this. Quote, if God has elected me to salvation, I cannot be damned. Do as I will. Or, quote, if I am not elected to eternal life, whatever good I do is of no avail. Everything is in vain in that case. End quote. Nine. We must learn about Christ from the Holy Gospel alone, which clearly testifies that God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Romans 11 verse 32. 
and that he does not want anyone to perish. Ezekiel 33:11 and 18 verse 23 but that everyone should repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.6, 1 John 2, verse 2. 10. The doctrine of God's eternal election is profitable and comforting to the person who concerns himself with the revealed will of God and observes the order which St. Paul follows in the epistle to the Romans. He there directs men first to repent, to acknowledge their sins, to believe in Christ, and to obey God, and only then does he speak of the mystery of God's eternal election. 11. The passage, many are called, but few are chosen, that is, um, sorry, Matthew 20, verse 16, does not mean that God does not desire to save everyone. The cause of condemnation is that men either do not hear the word of God at all, but willfully despise it, harden their ears and their hearts, and thus bar the ordinary way for the Holy Spirit so that he cannot work in them. Or if they do hear the word, they cast it to the wind and pay no attention to it. The fault does not lie in God or his election, but in their own wickedness. Second Peter 2 verse 2, Luke 11 verse 49 and 52, and Hebrews 12 verse 25. In other words, we as Lutherans reject the concept of double predestination, where God ordains one group of people to be saved and everybody else he has chosen eternally for them to be damned. 12. The Christian is to concern himself with the doctrine of the eternal election of God only insofar as it is revealed in the word of God, which shows us Christ as the book of life. Through the proclamation of the Holy Gospel, Christ opens and reveals this book for us. As it is written, those he predestined, he also called. Romans 8 verse 30. In Christ we should seek the eternal election of the Father, who has decreed in his eternal counsel that he would save no one except those who acknowledge his Son, Christ, and truly believe on him. The Christian should banish all other opinions since they do not proceed from God, but are inspired by the evil foe in an attempt to weaken for us or rob us entirely of the glorious comfort which this salutary doctrine gives us. Namely, that we know that we have been elected to eternal life out of pure grace in Christ without any merit of our own, and that no one can pluck us out of his hand. God assures us of this gracious election not only in mere words, but also with his oath, and has sealed it with his holy sacraments, of which we can remind ourselves, and with which we can comfort ourselves in our greatest temptations, and thus extinguish the flaming darts of the devil. In other words, election though a mystery, does not save you. Jesus saves you. Our biggest focus is on Christ. Continuing on, though. 13. Furthermore, we are to put forth every effort to live according to the will of God and to confirm our call, as St. Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 10. Especially are we to abide by the revealed word which cannot and will not deceive us. 14. This brief exposition of the doctrine of God's eternal election gives God his glory entirely and completely, because he, out of pure grace alone, without any merit of ours, saves us according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1 verse 11. Nor will this doctrine ever give anyone occasion either to despair or to lead a reckless and godless life. Now, for the antitheses, false doctrine concerning this article. Accordingly, We believe and maintain 
that if anybody teaches the doctrine of the gracious election of God to eternal life in such a way that disconsolate Christians can find no comfort in this doctrine, but are driven to doubt and despair, or in such a way that the impenitent are strengthened in their self-will, he is not teaching the doctrine according to the word and will of God, but in accord with his reason and under the direction of the devil, since everything in his reason under the uh, since everything in Scripture, St. Paul testifies, was written for our instruction that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Therefore, we reject the following errors. 1. The doctrine that God does not want all men to come to the repentance and to believe in the gospel. Uh, the Calvinistic special vocation is rejected here. 2. Furthermore, the doctrine that God is not serious about wanting all men to come to him when he calls us to him. 3. Furthermore, that God does not want everybody to be saved, but that merely by an arbitrary counsel, purpose, and will, without regard for their sin, God has predestined certain people to damnation so that they cannot be saved. And again, that's a double election or double predestination. Theodore Beza and the Gallic Confession talk about that. 4. Likewise, that it is not only the mercy of God and the most holy merit of Christ, but that there is also within us a cause of God's election, on account of which he has elected us to eternal life. These are all blasphemous and terrible errors, for they rob Christians of all the comfort that they have in the Holy Gospel and in the use of the Holy Sacraments. Hence, they should not be tolerated in God's church. This is a brief and simple explanation of the various articles which for a time the theologian of the Augsburg Confession have been discussing and teaching in mutually contradictory terms. From it, under the guidance of the Word of God and the plain catechism, every simple Christian can understand what is right and what is wrong, since we have not only set forth the pure doctrine, but have also exposed the contrary errors. In this way, the offensive controversies that have developed receive a basic settlement. May the Almighty God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ grant us the grace of his Holy Spirit, that we may all be of one heart in him and constantly abide in this Christian and God-pleasing concord. Amen. Now, regarding Article 12, other factions and sects which have not committed themselves to the Augsburg Confession. In the preceding ex explanation, we have made no mention of the errors held by these factions. But lest as a result of our silence these errors be attributed to us, we wish here at the end merely to enumerate the articles in which they err and contradict our repeatedly cited Christian creed and confession. Errors of the Anabaptists The Anabaptists have split into many factions, some of which teach many errors, others teach fewer, but in general, they profess doctrines of a kind that cannot be tolerated either in the church or in the body politic and secular administration or in domestic society. Errors which cannot be tolerated in the church. That Christ, one, that Christ did not assume his body and blood from the Virgin Mary, but brought them with him from heaven. Two, that Christ is not true God, but that he only has more gifts of the Holy Spirit than any other holy person. Three, that our righteousness before God does not consist wholly in the unique merit of Christ, but in renewal and in our own pious behavior. For the most part, this piety is built on one's own individual self-chosen spirituality, which in fact is nothing else but a new kind of monkery. 
4. That in the sight of God, unbaptized children are not sinners, but are righteous and innocent, and that as long as they have not achieved the use of reason, they will be saved in this innocent without innocence without baptism, which according to this view they do not need. They thus reject the entire doctrine of, the, of original sin and everything that pertains to it. 5. That children are not to be baptized until they have achieved the use of reason and can confess their faith personally. 6. That without and prior to baptism, the children of Christian parents are holy in the children of God by virtue of their birth from Christians and pious parents. Uh, for this reason, too, the Anabaptists neither think highly of infant baptism nor encourage it, in spite of the expressed word of God's promise, which extends only to those who keep his covenant and do not despise it. That's Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8 and 19 through 21. 7. That a congregation is not truly Christian if sinners are still found in it. 8. That no one should hear sermons or attend services in those temples where formerly papistic masses were read and celebrated. 9. That one is to have nothing to do with clergymen who preach the gospel according to the Augsburg Confession and reprove the preaching and the errors of the Anabaptists. Nor should one serve them or work for them in any way but flee and avoid them as perverters of God's word. Intolerable articles in the body politic. And yeah, so these are not theological things. These are just, hey, this is bad for society. One, the government is not a God-pleasing estate in the New Testament. Two, that no Christian can serve or function in any civic office without a good, with a good and clear conscience. Three, that as occasion arises, no Christian, without violating his conscience, may use an office of the government against wicked people, and that subjects may not call upon the government to use the power that it possesses, and that it has received from God for their protection and defense. Four, that a Christian cannot swear an oath with a good conscience, nor pay oath-bound feudal homage to his territorial sovereign or liege lord. Five, that in the New Testament the government cannot, with a clear conscience, inflict capital punishment upon criminals. Intolerable errors which undermine domestic society. 1. That a Christian cannot, with a good conscience, hold or possess private property, but is in conscience bound to put it into a common treasury. 2. That a Christian cannot, with a good conscience, be an innkeeper, a merchant, or a cutler. 3. That difference of faith is sufficient ground for married people to divorce one another, each go his own way, and marry someone else belonging to the same faith. Now, onto errors of the Schwenkfelders. Schwenkfelders being a very interesting group. 1. That all who say that Christ according to the flesh is a creature do not have a right understanding of Christ as the reigning king of heaven. 2. That in Christ's glorification, his flesh received all the divine properties in such a way that Christ as man is fully equal in rank and essential estates to the Father and to the Word as far as might, power, majesty, and glory are concerned, and that now both natures in Christ possess only one divine essence, property, will, and glory, and that the flesh of Christ belongs to the essence of the Holy Trinity. 3. That the ministry of the church, the word preached and heard, is not a means through which God the Holy Spirit teaches people and creates in them the saving knowledge of Christ, conversion, repentance, faith, and new obedience. 4. That the water of baptism is not a means through which the Lord God seals the adoption of children and effects rebirth. 5. That bread and wine in the Holy Supper are not means through and by which Christ distributes his body and blood. 
6. That a Christian who is truly born again through the Spirit of God can perfectly keep and fulfill the law of God in his life. 7. That it is no true Christian congregation in which public expulsion and the orderly process of excommunication do not take place. 8. That a minister of the church cannot teach profitably or administer true and genuine sacraments unless he himself is truly reborn, righteous, and pious. Errors of the New Arians, the Unitarians of the 16th century. Uh, that error being that Christ is not a true, essential, natural God of one divine essence with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, but is merely adorned with divine majesty and is inferior to and beside God the Father. Error of the Anti-Trinitarians. This is an entirely new sect, unknown in Christendom until now, which believes, teaches, and confesses that there is not only one eternal divine essence belonging to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, so each person has its distinct divine essence separate from the other persons of the deity. Some maintain that each of the three has the same power, wisdom, majesty, and glory, just like any three individual people who are essentially separate from one another. Others maintain that the three are unequal in essence and properties, and that only the Father is rightly and truly God. All these and similar articles, together with their erroneous implications and conclusions, we reject and condemn as wrong, false, heretical, and contrary to the word of God, the three creeds, the Augsburg Confession, the Apology, the Small Called Articles, and the Catechisms of Luther. All pious Christians of high degree and low must guard against these if they dearly love their soul's eternal welfare and salvation. In testimony that this is the doctrine, faith, and confession of all of us, as we shall give account of it on the last day before the righteous judge, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we shall neither secretly nor publicly say or write anything contrary to it, but intend by the grace of God to abide by it, we have advisedly, in true fear and in invocation of God, subscribed our signatures with our own hands, done at Bergen, May 29, 1577. Dr. James Andriai, subscribed. Dr. Nicholas Salnecker, subscribed. Dr. Andrew Musculus, subscribed. Dr. Christopher Corner, subscribed. David Shitrias, uh, and Dr. Martin Chemnitz, the other Martin. So that is the epitome of the formula of Concord. Whew. You'd think for an epitome it wouldn't be two hours long, right? But we still have well over about 150 pages left to go. So that is, we're going to get into the solid declaration piece by piece here. But our Lord be with you as he continues to teach us right and true doctrine through his word. Amen.